You are listening to Beetroot, a product of Uber Radio. We are your hosts, Lottie and Marta. Hello. And this week, it's just us. It's just us and our little lonesome. Just the two of us. Um, and this week, we wanted to take the opportunity for you guys to get to know us. So we've come along with our favourite poems. Yes, we have. Um, what did you bring along, Lottie? What did you have for us? Um, so I decided to bring Daffodils by Ted Hughes, um, mm. which is uh, a new favourite poem of mine. Um, it kind of overtook anything else that I ever had um, in my mind's eye as being my favourite poem recently when I um, opened a page and found it and it kind of just clicked automatically. <laughs> I can tell it's your favourite poem because it's uh, <laughs> hanging out of your book, yeah, <laughs> out of the uh, collection. Trying is... to escape and uh, <laughs> I feel our days are numbered. Um. <laughs> That's lovely. Um, would you like to read it for us? Of course. <clears throat> this is Daffodils by Ted Hughes. Remember how we picked the daffodils. Nobody else remembers, but I remember. Your daughter came with her armfuls, eager and happy, helping the harvest. She has forgotten. She cannot even remember you, and we sold them. It sounds like sacrilege, but we sold them. Were we so poor? Old stone man, the grocer, boss-eyed, his blood pleasure burbling to beetroot. It was his last chance. He would die in the same great freeze as you. He persuaded us every spring. He always brought them, seven pence a dozen, a custom of the house. Besides, we still weren't sure we wanted to own anything. Mainly, we were hungry to convert everything to profit, still nomads, still strangers, to our whole possession. The daffodils were incidental gilding of the deeds, treasure trove. They simply came and they kept on coming, as if not from the sod, but falling from heaven. Our lives were still arrayed on our own good luck. We knew we'd live forever. We had not learned what a fleeting glance of the everlasting daffodils are, never identified the natural flight of the rarest affirmer. Our own days, we thought they were a windfall, never guessed they were a last blessing. So we sold them. We worked at selling them, as if employed on somebody else's flower farm. You bent at it in the rain of April, your last April. We bent there together among the soft shrieks of their jostled stems, the wet shock shaken of their girlish dance frocks, fresh open dragonflies, wet and flimsy, opened too early. We piled their frailty lights on a carpenter's bench, distributed leaves among the dozens, buckling blade leaves, limber groping for air, zinc silvered, propped their raw butts in bucket water, their oval meaty butts, and sold them, seven pence a bunch. Wind wounds, spasms from the dark earth with their odorless metals, a flamy purification of the deep grave's stony cold, as if ice had breath. We sold them to wither. The crop thickened faster than we could thin it. Finally, we were overwhelmed and we lost our wedding present scissors. Every March since, they have lifted again, out of the same bulbs, the same baby cries from the thaw, ballerinas too early for music, shiverers in the drafty wings of the year, on that same groundswell of memory, fluttering, they return to forget you stooping there, behind the rainy curtains of a dark April, snipping their stems. But somewhere, your scissors remember, wherever they are, 
here somewhere, blades wide open, April by April, sinking deeper through the sod, an anchor, a cross of rust. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very glad um, that I got to share this one um, today. It's it's. I've always been a, a really big fan of Ted Hughes, and on our previous episode, we mm-hmm. uh, spoke about Sylvia Plath and. Even when uh, her name is spoken in the room, I immediately think of the two of them together. Yeah. So. But um, why this poem in particular of all his poems? Um, so uh, I, as many of you may not have guessed yet, I'm from England and I grew up in the countryside. And when I read this poem, it immediately took me back to the image of the daffodils um, in the countryside. Mm-hmm. And me and my father used to pick daffodils, and I know in this poem, uh, Ted Hughes is definitely remembering his wife, Sylvia Plath. Um, and me and my father used to pick daffodils together, and he passed away when I was a little bit younger. So emotionally, it really uh, rings out for me, and the image really takes me back to a home I've since moved away from as well. Um, and I can just really see the yellow of the daffodils. Yeah, it's such a strong image. Like, even for me who grew up in a city, it takes me into this sort of bubble of uh, yeah, this memory. Um, is there an image in particular that really strikes you? Um, I, I particularly like uh, one of the last lines, which is ballerinas too early for music, um, which immediately takes me out of the, the pastoral countryside image of the daffodils and right onto a stage with perhaps like I don't know 15 muddled ballet dancers all running around and barging into each other um but I suppose it's uh that kind of grouping that he creates among the daffodils you know they're sprouting up all together with other flowers and it's a very similar image with the ballerinas as well mm-hmm. um also with their with their beauty um but also it's an object that can hold so much pain i think for him because it's definitely a poem of remembrance it's it, i mean it begins remember how we picked the daffodils um and while they're such a beautiful flower that they definitely hold some significance with the season of spring mm-hmm. so they're always linked to some certain period of the year and definitely uh, some significance for his wife and his children as well so yeah for sure there's such a delicate there's so many delicate images in this like something really ephemeral Mm. um with the daffodils and also the ballerinas yeah it's it's a very carefree poem um but it still remains very grounded in the memory that he's uh recasting um i really like the line we knew we'd live forever we had not learned what a fleeting glance of the everlasting daffodils are you know, it's this naivety that they go storming into, I'm sure, as young lovers, mm-hmm. just newly married, newly wed. Um, and there's the image of the wedding, the wedding present scissors that they use to cut these daffodils with, um, you know, and they're kind of a symbol of the new, mm-hmm. of this naivety that they have going into the newly wed life. And they had not learned what a fleeting glance of the everlasting daffodils are. Yeah. So soon things I'm sure are going to get very different to them for them and for those of you who don't know so much about um, 
Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Mm. Uh, she really struggled tremendously with her mental health and there's always a side that has to be chosen where I feel people are made to yeah. feel as if they have to choose a side. When it comes to Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath and even after her death, um, it was very, very tough. She uh, killed herself and Ted Hughes was left to deal with the aftermath and all of the blame and mm. all of the the really bitter feeling that came from a lot of her fans and also from a lot of his fans that yeah. kind of portrayed it that he had something to to do with her death um, and he describes them climbing over the yew trees of their house in Devon and I just really hate that image of these uh, photographers you know really coming for him yeah um but I think he finds his peace here um, in focusing on this materiality of of their marriage, like the wedding present scissors, um, the daffodils, uh, um, the treasure trove. There's so many images that are so object-specific mm-hmm. that I, it, it almost feels like walking around in the memory. You know, we spoke last episode about Sylvia swimming in the memory, and I definitely yeah. think Ted picked that up from her as well in focusing on confessional work like this um yeah yeah do you think in maybe in some way also the poem like the scissors is also just trying to keep all of these memories in one place and like make sense of them or not let them slip away like the daffodils and yeah i mean i remember a while ago um we focused we both studied the same course um and we focused on an article called Happy Objects by Sarah Ahmed. And it Mm. really made me think of that because these wedding present scissors hold a lot of sentimental value for Ted Hughes. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's very heavy and and they're lost as well. And we lost our wedding present scissors. And that's kind of a symbol of the loss of a marriage. I don't feel like when he writes this line, he's saying, and I, you know, I misplaced them. I must have left them on the wall or they're under some soil somewhere. I really yeah. feel like he uh, lost something much more significant. And for me, when I'm reading this poem, it's recounting the image of the daffodils that takes me back to perhaps a happier memory that I have with my father. Mm-hmm. And it's... Uh, you know, then that becomes a happy object for me. Every spring when my mother does buy daffodils, it's a moment where I, you know, go back to, to that moment and I'm I'm sure if these wedding present scissors are still floating around somewhere for Frida and Nicholas, who are their children, perhaps it brings back that same um, kind of sentiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really like that um, simplicity nearly of mm. just an object you know it's it's just a daffodil really um and I, i'm like thinking of my poem which i'm going to read after where he talks about um the last song that he listened to on a walkman and just yeah. this object of the the walkman and i think that's also something um like that object in itself is embedded with so much poetry um yeah yeah i think the symbol of the daffodil is so great though because yes it's an object but it's also a living thing mm-hmm. and I I think that's what he wants to focus mm. on with the memory that it is you know an object that can be placed in the brain and displaced yeah but it also is a living thing and it breathes very much within how we operate in our day-to-day lives um, but I really feel as poets 
they also both became daffodils in a certain sense because they were both living things, but they kind of became transformed into objects in some way. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, two chess pieces who had uh, coincidentally met and then yeah. one's poetry influenced the other. And I think a lot of people forget sometimes um, when we're analysing their poetry that they were in love once, they fought once, they, you know, someone had a very bad mental health situation and ended up killing herself and another had a very very you know bad relationship to monogamy it seems um and his treatment of women so they're only human in a way mm. you know daffodil- daffodils are not just pretty they're also going to sprout up and die at some point so i think uh it, it was a very fitting title for the poem definitely um yeah yeah Maybe one last question, but I'm curious because I think this poem has a lot of emotions in it because there's something, as you said, quite playful and quite reminiscing and lovely and then something also really deeply sad mm. when you also know like kind of their story and stuff. How do you feel kind of once you've read all of it, like at the end, what emotion are you left with? I mean, yeah, from the way I came to this poem was I was uh, going over some of their work that I've read because I've been an avid uh, Ted Hughes and mm-hmm. Sylvia Plath fan ever since I, I think I discovered them maybe in high school or something mm-hmm. they were put into the syllabus and yeah I came to this one and it kind of summarised their whole marriage for me but in a mm-hmm. way that wasn't very specific like I imagine that there are some poets who are very surprised when they write about family and when they write about personal love relationships um, and experiences mm-hmm. that people find something in that and they relate to it but there is a universality to the way that he writes about a marriage and about the experience of fatherhood um, and about the experience of losing someone and of memory because it is such a huge responsibility um, when you do lose someone because suddenly you're not left with a person you're left with their memory instead yeah. So to keep that alive is almost as hard as watering a flower every single day and sustaining it because yeah. if you forget then, you know, if you forget to remember, then it's going to go away eventually. So you're left with a different kind of responsibility when there is a loss. Um, and I think he's given some of that responsibility over to this poem. So... <laughs> That's really lovely. I'm really happy that you brought in this poem. I didn't know it before, but it's really lovely. Can I hear yours, please? <laughs> yes, of course. Um, so my poem is Walkman by Michael Robbins. I've been asking myself for the past few days why the fuck I chose this poem, because I read it um, for the first time when I was 14 or 15 <laughs> and haven't reread it since. Um, but then when we talked about coming in with our favorite poem for some reason this poem just popped back into my mind and I couldn't think of any other poem that I wanted to bring on even though there's many more that I have thought about way more in the past few years so I've been rereading it and like trying to understand why this one really appealed to me and why it popped up in my mind again Mm -hmm. after all these years um it's a very long poem it's six pages long so I'm only going to be reading the (laughs) beginning and the end But you can find it online at the Paris Review, and it's a very funny and easy 
poem to read, so I would mm -hmm. recommend to read the full thing. Will you please read it for us, Martha? Okay. <laughs> if you insist. <laughs> if you insist. I'll do it. It's called Walkman. I didn't mean to quit drinking. It just sort of happened. I'd always assumed it'd be difficult, or not difficult exactly, but impossible. Then, one New Year's Eve, 20 years ago, at the VFW, Craig and I were drinking beer from brown bottles, peeling the labels off into little confetti nests. In Mexico, the previous New Year's Eve, I'd started drinking again after a year sober. I traveled by myself in Oaxaca for a month and had at least two beautiful experiences. The bus I was on broke down in the mountains and I watched the stars blink on with a Mexican girl who later sent me a letter I never answered. That's one of the experiences. The others are secret. We left the VFW at a reasonable hour for once. I never took another drink. I'm not sure why not. I don't think it had anything to do with me. I think it was a miracle. Like when the hero at the last second pulls a lever to switch the train to the track the heroine's not tied to. I was always bro broke in those days, whereas now I'm just poor. I brought a Walkman and a backpack stuffed with cassettes to Oaxaca. I was sick of them all within a week and longed to buy a new tape but couldn't spare the pesos. I listened to live through this at the Zopotec ruins of Monte Alban, rumors on the bus to DF. At Puerto Angel, my headphones leaking tiny discord across a rooftop bar, I sat watching the ocean. An American man about the age I am now asked what I was listening to. I said Sonic Youth. He asked, which album? I said Sister. He chuckled and said, I'm Johnny Strike. It probably wasn't a miracle, but I couldn't believe it. Here was the guy who wrote Crime's 1976 classic Heartwire My Heart, which Sonic Youth covered on their 1987 classic Sister, which I was listening to on my Walkman at the end of Mexico in the Sun. Except, actually, I was listening to Daydream Nation. I changed it to Sister when I tell that story, but it's a beautiful story, even without embellishment. I'm going to the end of the poem now. I wish I'd kept the Mexican girl's letter. I wish I'd kept the copiers with their slow arms of light, the lights of DF filling the Valley of Mexico as the bus makes its slow way down this and Stevie sings, what you had or what you lost. Schuler and his wishes. I wish it was 1938 or 39 again. I wish I could make, I wish I could take an engine apart and reassemble it. I wish I'd brought my book of enlightening literary essays. I wish I could press snowflakes in a book like flowers. That last one's my favorite. I wish I had written it. I would often kick for months until driven back to a bar by fear or boredom or both. I saw Tomorrow Never Die starring Pierce Brosnan, the second worst James Bond in Oaxaca, and came out wishing my life were romantic and exciting and charmed, or at least that I had someone to talk to. So I stopped at the first bar I saw and someone talked to me. It's so sad and perfect to be young and alone in the Zolaco when the lights light, when the little lights come up like fish surfacing beneath the moon and you want to grab people by and say, who are you? Are you as afraid as I am? And you don't know that 20 years later you'll be writing this poem. Well, now I'm being sentimental and forgetting that in those days I wrote the worst poems ever. I held a guitar and trembled and could not sing is an actual line I wrote. The typhoon guy could have written better poetry. Today I want to write about how it's been almost 20 years since I owned a Walkman. Just think, there was a song that I didn't know would be the last song I would ever play on a Walkman. I listened to it like it was just any old song, because it was. Thank you, Martha. <laughs> <laughs> that was so nice. How does it feel to read it? It's a really enjoyable poem to read. Um, it's just got something very 
humorous about it. I yeah. really get into this character. I feel like I'm this guy, you know, I feel yeah. like I'm in the end of Mexico in the sun listening to Sister and, yeah. you know. Um, It's yeah. like you're telling a story. Like, I yeah. could have listened to the whole six pages for sure if we had unlimited airtime. <laughs> for sure. But I think that's why I connect to it so more, like, so, so more, so much. I think it's definitely this storytelling aspect that's yeah. just so prevalent for me and like really the one thing that I connect to the most you know mm. um, which part of the story d gets you the most in this poem uh, oh, I definitely think it's those little moments where you become self-conscious that this is a story that it's that is constructed mm -hmm. you know um, when when he he says you know when he um, has the guy come up to him and he says, well, I, I actually changed this to sister when I tell the story, mm -hmm. but it's still a beautiful story nevertheless. Or at the end when he's saying all of these I wish, and then he says, you know, you realize that it's not him who's written those those lines, and he's like, that last one's my favorite, I wish I'd written it. Mm -hmm. All of these moments where you realize that this whole story is constructed in a certain way. Like, I think, you know, as opposed to you, I grew up um, in a big city or like I grew up in Paris but my family's Irish and Italian and like we are all kind of dis yeah. dispersed all over the place and what keep kept it all together for me were you know I didn't have like this place that I could go to that was like home but I had like these stories and these objects and these films and you know the way I had access to my Italian culture was through like the Toto movies like growing up and you know or the like stories um And so all of these like stories and movies and songs, they all kind of collage themselves into this mm. identity. And I think this is why I also really like this poem is just so fast paced. And he's talking about all of these objects and movies and songs yeah. um, and how those really shape his experience. You know, like when he's there and he's talking about um, what he listened to in what places. He's like, I listened to live through this at the Zopotec ruins and rumors on the bus to DR, you mm. know, how these objects and I feel also poetry and stuff like that, it really shapes the way that you experience things, either mm. what you're listening to while, or I remember once I went to see this like French new wave film and when I came out of it, I couldn't stop talking the way that they were talking and I, <laughs> I was just seeing the world with that filter and yeah. walking back home feeling like I was, you know, some mm. really sexy, like... <laughs> French new wave uh, star, you know? Um, I love that idea, though, of um, not necessarily a place being your home, but stories being your home, or even objects being your home. You know, like, the Walkman is the home, the daffodils are the home. And I can see on these six pages of paper that it is hardly any breaks in any... It's just one stanza for six pages. It's one stanza for six pages. And it's like... Uh, it, He's traveling the whole time. I got on the bus, I walked through, I ended up sitting somewhere. And it's it's like he's, uh, you know, traveling through, a, a, you know, a cultural uh, um, yeah. land, you know, landfill of, of his history or something. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely mm. that feeling and I... That's the kind of tension that I connect to in the poem and that I like is at this on the one side, this sort of airing, you know, he's in Mexico, then he's back in New York, mm. then he's all of that. But then you kind of feel that with this incessant ramble of like six full pages, in some way you get a feeling of who this person is and mm. their story and 
I like that, you know, that in all of those disconnected, airing things, it's still, you know, it's still one stanza, it still yeah. works all together. The music grounds you, because he's, uh, he's not staying still anywhere, he's not staying put. So, I mean, I love the part where it says, and Stevie sang, um, what you had or what you lost. Like, rumors! Rumors! <laughs> Such a good album! And, uh, but all of the, the references to the Sonic Youth album, uh, mm. Fleetwood Mac, they're, they're what grounds the story. It's not any of the locations he goes through. Whereas Daffodils, I feel, is in, it's in one very specific place for me and it's in a back garden. It, mm-hmm. It's not specific, it's not to any family, but it's mm-hmm. definitely in a back garden and I know what that looks like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is definitely on its way to somewhere. Is there a particular line that you really love? Mm, there's a few that I really like. Um, I'm going to choose two just because I like them for really different reasons. Um, I like how poetic some of the lines are. You know, they're like little breaths of fresh air um, in all of these, you know, references to people that I know or that I don't know or whatever. There's just these images that are so, you know, like, I wish I could press snowflakes in a book like flowers. Like, that is just such a beautiful even if you didn't write it (laughs) it's a really beautiful image um but then definitely the line that and i think this is why i brought on this poem in the end is that line where he he yeah when the guy comes up to him and then he's like you know i change it to sister when i tell that story but it's a beautiful story even without embellishment um you know i think of my irish family and we have this one uncle, Uncle Charlie, who's not, I don't even know whose uncle he is, but he's <laughs> just the figure of Uncle Charlie. And everybody has a different, you know, a different take on his story and his life. And everybody's always fighting over it. No, Uncle Charlie didn't die in Cuba. He died on the boat. No, he died when he was back in Ireland. He never even went to Cuba, you know? And, and I was back in Ireland a few weeks ago and I was talking to my grandfather and I, you know, I asked him like, you know, what is, what is the real story of Uncle Charlie? And he looks at me like dead in the eye and he's like, the first person to tell the story of Uncle Charlie's death, Marta, was Uncle Charlie himself. <laughs> you know, and just this idea of stories being constantly changed and reappropriated, but yeah. they're beautiful even without embellishment because it's not the story that mm. matters really, you know? Yeah, and it, it doesn't die with Uncle Charlie either. It like, doesn't. it's going to live on past him. Exactly, <laughs> you know? And I, I really, I connect to that feeling mm. a lot. I do. I really like the snowflake line that you read because it, it reminds me of a certain impermanence that all of, even committing the written word to a book like these poets have done, I feel like nothing is ever so permanent um, with your memory that you mm-hmm. can grasp onto it so much. I wish I could press snowflakes into a book, but unfortunately they're going to melt. Yeah. You know? You know what I like? I, I just kind of made a connection between our two poems, but it's kind of the unavoidability of living in the present in a certain sense because mm. I, I just think of that last line you know um, it uh, you know I didn't realize that it would be the last uh, the last song I listened to on a wa- Walkman you yeah. know and you're just listening to it like it's any old song and I think that kind of reminds me of that line that we were talking about you know we, we knew we'd live forever yeah. kind of this how foolish we were how yeah. foolish we were you know and idiots you, yeah. idiots living in the present what yeah. <laughs> you know and then kind of returning mm. back onto that after through poetry 
and yeah. trying to go back to that moment, but you can because on that moment you didn't know. Mm. I guess we can only kind of leave cornerstones for us to look back at, just like poetry itself, um, because life's moving on no matter, and it's going to take us with it no matter how hard we try not to. And definitely, I I have that uh, when I do come back to the city from being mm-hmm. in the countryside because no one is in a rush there. Yeah. You know, we're in no rush to get anywhere. There's no public transport anywhere. We're in the middle of nowhere, so it's this temporality that exists outside of the urban space. But we're made to feel as if it's a problem in some sense, that mm-hmm. we're not in a rush, you know? Come yeah. on, uh, time's of the essence. Um, seize the day, carpe diem. Like, come on, let's get going, <laughs> yeah, let's get yeah. in the car. And, and I miss that sometimes, but I think that's the real power, power of poetry, um, to slow things down a little bit yeah. and bring us to a halt. Exactly, and that's what we hope we also do a little bit with Beetroot. Yeah, we hope you halted today with this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, as a wonderful transition, um, it's been really amazing today. I really loved hearing your poem. And I liked hearing your poem, Marta. (laughs) Amazing, look at us. Well, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week. See you next week. Bye.